There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. That's not a knife. <laughs> this is a knife. What are you looking at? Rolling in a boy, you're mad, you bastard. Far am you. Far am you. There's no cash here. Here, there's no cash, right? Cash, no. Robo? No cash. Swear to Christ, Liz, you get a bag of all sorts in here, mate. Welcome to Walk Walk. Hello and welcome to Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied landscape that is Australian cinema. We wish to acknowledge traditional custodians of the land that this podcast is being recorded on, the Wadjuk people of Perth region. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community and pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past and present. On this episode, I'm joined by the director of a documentary called It's Not Just Me, Jonathan Messer. And this documentary is about four transgender men who are essentially going through the transition process from being female to male. And we see the warts and all of that transition process. It's a really fantastic documentary that screened recently at Revelation Film Festival. And unfortunately, it will be a short while before you guys get to see it because it's actually part of Jonathan Messer's PhD. So with that, uh, the film actually takes up 50% of his PhD, which you'll hear a bit more about within the, the interview. Um, it's really great. I gave it four and a half stars. I think it's one of the best films, uh, documentaries I've seen this year. Really impactful, really amusing, and just a great enlightening story uh, that I'm really, really keen for everybody to see uh, when they get a chance because it's a great film that talking about a subject that, you know, is certainly in the media quite a bit lately. Um, and I think that people need to open their eyes and understand that transgender folk, they're just people too. They have, you know, they live life exactly the same as everybody else. They are no different from you and me and everybody else. And I hope that comes through in the interview because it's, you know, I had a great time uh, interviewing Jonathan. In fact, um, we did it. We fully intended to uh, do the interview in uh, Luna Leaderville, but um, unfortunately we got the touch early and they weren't open yet. So instead we did it in Jonathan's car. Uh, and so it's, you know, uh, very, very independent uh, audio here uh, for a very independent film. Anyway, let's have a quick listen to the short trailer and then we'll be back with the interview. This is a big thing. It's been something that I've hidden since I was about five years old. Maybe if I continued acting like a girl and doing what girls were supposed to do, I would start to feel normal. I feel quite depressed when I look in a mirror. It feels wrong. Am I doing the right thing? I have thought that. I definitely have lost a lot of things. Female friends, male friends. There's nothing wrong with my mind. It's my body that's the issue. Welcome back, everybody, and I'm joined by Jonathan Messer, who is the director of a documentary called It's Not Just Me, which is a fantastic documentary. Um, so welcome. Thank you very much for joining me to discuss your film and your work and everything that you've done. Uh, we're going to go in deep with your life. <laughs> no, it's all right. We're not yeah, going to go that help. deep. <laughs> um, do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about what this documentary is about? Okay, so good morning, Andy. How you going? Um, I um, started this documentary about four years ago. The documentary is about four transgender men here in Perth, and um, mainly 
following two from their first injection of testosterone and we kind of track um, their developments over a year and then we kind of see two other trans guys and we see um, their lives unfold in different ways. One has already fully transitioned and is um, living in the community uh, happily and then another one is um, in the process of transitioning but he films his own life um, for about four months with a GoPro camera. And you kind of came up with this for your PhD, is that correct? Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit about what your goal is with the PhD. Okay, so um, I was looking at um, transgender uh, females in popular culture because suddenly there's um, a very great acceptance of trans females into um, the mainstream. So we're seeing Laverne Cox... Um, on the cover of Time. We're also now, after that, seeing Caitlyn Jenner. And um, I just, I wanted to explore that, so I was going to look at from transsexual Transylvania to the girl next door. So looking at the alien, the other, the uh, transgender female as freak um, in the Frankenfurter character in Rocky Horror, and then tracking it from Hedwig in the Angry, to Hedwig in the Angry Inch, and then to Trans America, and I was going to pull those uh, three films apart in detail. And then when I looked at the literature and actually explored a little bit deeper, I realised that trans men are largely invisible, and I couldn't mm. understand why. So, yeah, well, that's one of the discussions which I'd kind of, when I saw the program for Revelation pop up, and I saw your film in there, I was like, I must see this film, because one of the questions which I had in regards to um, social media in particular is that. You know, people like Caitlyn Jenner, are, you know, they're huge. They've, they've got a huge voice. And to me, it kind of feels like she's using her voice as kind of like a, a platform but was boosted by the Kardashians. But then you have somebody like Chaz Bono, who is equally out there and talks about, you know, his story. And there's hardly any media coverage at all. So when I saw your documentary, I was like, I must see this because, yeah, Trans men, we don't get their story all too much. Why do you think that is? I think there's a number of reasons, but I think one of the main reasons is still there's the freak aspect, but then there's the normalisation. And um, Chaz Bono is largely invisible. I think it's because um, trans women are often fetishised and used as objects in porn, Mm -hmm. actually. And so trans men aren't useful you know i don't mean useful but aren't generally fetishized by heterosexual cisgendered men and also because trans men have you know in the eyes of many people been women before there's still a a, an underlying misogyny so it's it's rather complex yeah it is and i think what i found really interesting about the documentary is that you know, Perth is a pretty small place. <laughs> and so for me, I was a bit like, you know, I guess it's very it's very interesting the fact that um, trans people, for me at least being a cisgendered white guy, straight white guy, I don't see very many trans people being vocal in Perth. And I wonder if that's the culture of Perth. And if so, how did you go about casting this film? So I think that the, one of the reasons why you don't see many transgender men in popular culture but also in the wider community is because, and I hate using this term, they essentially pass. They become invisible. Mm-hmm. And so 
um, being invisible is often safe, but also it takes a lot of guts to put yourself out there and out yourself as a transgender person because of the stigma associated with it. So me finding the people to be in my movie was quite difficult. I wrote um, many, many letters. Because I'm operating in a research paradigm, I have to um, be bound by the um, human research ethics um, guidelines. So I can't just walk up to somebody in the street and say, hey, are you trans? I'm making a movie. So I have to write letters and I have to engage. So I talked to um, psychologists, psychiatrists, wrote lots of letters. And eventually it was through word of mouth somebody contacted me and um, I was doing interviews with trans guys who didn't want to be in the movie and weren't interested and they said that um, they had some friends and it kind of snowballed and Mm. they said that they had two friends who were studying their injections this Friday and it was actually Monday and I just (laughs) had to jump into action so it was a very difficult process and um, it's also about trust and a very deep sense of trust. these people needed to, the participants, they needed to know that um, I wouldn't hurt them or construe them in a negative way and I made sure that they had final edit of all of their stories so that they would be able to sit comfortably with anything that they divulged or shared that they may not be wanting to live in the public domain forever. Mm. I think one of the interesting things too is that unfortunately in... in popular culture or in the social stigma from my perspective at least is that the the trans story is often a tragic story and i wonder if it's because of the fact that films you know from 70s 80s and 90s and stuff like that always portrayed it as portrayed the trans story as being a very difficult tragic story so what i love about your film is that you know these the guys that are in there you know they're very funny and they're very relatable and they're very amusing and you know, I shouldn't sound shocked, but I'm glad that that's the case. Um, so did you, were you pleased by the fact that, you know, these are very just normal people, essentially, and, and that helps break down the stigmas? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think life itself is very tragic, but it can be also very comic. And when we look back at the 80s and 90s and we look at some trans films like um, The Crying Game or... Um, boys don't cry you know there there's literature out there for um therapists to unwind all of mm. that especially with boys don't cry because some people became so traumatized by that it pushed them way further back into the closet and they they you know even though that's not a transgender person that's that somebody you know essentially pretending to be a man i don't know uh if that person you know wished to go on to be a transgender man but in in the movie you know there is some sort of trickery in my film there's no trickery um and the characters are just open and honest and completely sharing of everything and i think that's a testament to them and their their will to enlighten others and um share their reality because what you get from the film is they're actually just normal people yeah (laughs) and they've all got problems like everybody else does you know they've got dad issues they've got you know family issues relationship issues and it doesn't matter if they were transgender or not you know people have those issues and it's just what people go through in real life so you're saying that you know you you on the monday 
you're like, ah, oh, these people are getting their injections on the Friday. And we see the injections in the film. So were those, the injections that are in the film, were they kind of like, were they the, the injections that they, they got the first ones? Yes. Right. Yep. So I, I rang both of them. So I rang Simon and I rang David and I said, listen, I'm making this film. Are you interested? And Simon said, okay, come over to my house. Let's have a meeting and let's talk about it. I need to also talk about it with my family and my friends because it, inf- it will affect them. Um, and I, I went and I spoke to David on the phone and he was like, yeah, of course. Why wouldn't I do this? So... Um, it was a it was a shock because I'd I'd literally sat around for a year waiting to find these people, but I wasn't sitting. I was panicking and pacing and, and worried. And you know, there was some point where I needed to have to make a video diary for my PhD of myself complaining about how I couldn't find anybody. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think it's just it's fascinating because those injections are, are intense. Like I can't, I'm I'm not needle shy or anything like that. I used to be a vet nurse, so I have no problems in giving injections or receiving them. Um, I donate blood and all that kind of stuff. But there is a there is a reality to the huge eighteen gauge needle, <laughs> and the amount of stuff that gets injected is is intense. So it's it's something that we don't see in film, uh, you know, or in documentaries about the trans journey of you know this is the the part that goes like this is whole you know whole hog essentially of what goes into the journey of of becoming a man or a woman Mm, yeah this is monthly for the rest of your life Mm. and i wanted an audience to feel squeamish and because the more times you see it it becomes less squeamish but i I wanted people to realize that um hormones are a very powerful thing and that you know there's pain involved to construct yourself yeah how long did you film for as well so um simon's story uh was for a year but we stopped filming at six months and then picked him up to catch up at the end of the 12 month period um david's was monthly for 12 months logan's story was for four months and he had a gopro and he was filming himself the whole time and Max, um, that was only for one day. So we saw his life, him get out of bed, do his thing during the day, go to work, go into the city, have a drink, and then go home to his flatmates um, and then go to bed. But what was interesting in that was I wasn't there. I gave the cameraman a brief and he went off and did it on his own. So two of the stories, essentially, um, I've given the cameraman or worked with Logan um, for him to tell his own story. And then in post-production, we've fashioned that and then collaborated so with documentaries usually it's the vision of a documentary filmmaker to be like this is the story they want to tell and this is how i'm going to capture it and stuff like that with your film it's a lot more collaborative uh, you know as you're saying logan had his own gopro and was telling his own story and, and i love logan's scenes as well because we get an an idea of of you know friendships and relationships in a completely different light in a really you know, in, in the way that Logan wants to tell his part of the story. Um, how was, like, was that a conscious decision or was it just kind of like a, a natural discussion that you had with the subjects to say, this is how I want to be able to, to show your story? Um, Logan, when he took the camera, he was very uneasy about appearing on camera, not only for safety, but just because he isn't 100% confident 
appearing on camera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think many people are. No. So, <laughs> That's why this is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so I, um, I just kind of talked to him and I said, you know, we will make this film, but you are guiding it with the footage that you give us. And in the end, um, at the very end after, and this is a testament also to the editor's work, um, there was only one note from Logan that we changed in the final cuts of the film, and that was just a shot that he didn't want left in that was kind of quite personal. It was a beautiful shot, but it was just something that he didn't want. Um, but, he, you know, he, he gave us a lot of footage, but he shared a lot of uh, very private and intimate stuff. So editing that stuff out in a way, not to protect him, but just to uh, make sure that, you know, because he filmed literally everything for mm. five months or four to five months and um you know there are some things that you don't want people to know about you that are far too intimate yeah yeah well i think at the q a that i went to he'd mentioned that there was probably about 60 hours of footage so culling all that down you know and, and your film's about 80 minutes long thereabouts um so it's yeah culling all that down into certain segments has got to be difficult so hats off to the editors <laughs> yeah and did an amazing job anthony webb yeah 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 it's it's really good um i think one of the the other interesting aspects is that you know because you do cover over a year we get to see the physical changes that they go through was that really important to be able to show what they were at the beginning of the year compared to what they were at the end of the year so specifically simon and david yeah, so there are these milestones that we do cover and you can see not only a physical change but a personality change. But I'm not sure whether it's the transition. I think it's more of a feeling settled within oneself um, and that does come out in the film. And I think the audience really appreciate that too. They appreciate the journey because we live in a visual culture where you, we like to see things. We're very Instagram, Facebook heavy and um these people as they're transitioning it's a very visual language and i think at the end they shared it incredibly so yeah it was important to show that because otherwise there's no journey yeah and you know certainly for for simon and david and the other guys as well um you know we get we get an understanding of of who they are as people and how they change as people and them becoming more comfortable as they transition into who they are and that's really powerful and especially you know it's got some really powerful moments with Simon's story which I think is it's just fantastic in in how you know his relationship changes with his partner at the beginning of the film and specifically with his relationship with his dad as well you know I think that's really impressive there's no real question in that particular statement but it's just I I love that that aspect of the story um with the q a's as well that you did at revelation how did they go the first one i felt was really amazing that was um at uh luna in leaderville and i think there was a lot of people who were actually in the film but their families and lots of friends and supporters and trans allies um but the one in um Fremantle at Luna SX um, I felt like there was a different kind of audience there was a kind of an audience that had come out to learn stuff but they were also in a way combative and there were two questions that were kind of markedly uh, rude Mm. and 
very pointed at the at the guys and 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 I almost intervened and said actually you can't ask someone that kind of question in a public forum not only is it embarrassing it's degrading and you look like an idiot but you know the guys handled it amazingly so you know but I just I feel like you know even the projection at Lunar SX you know the 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 screen is a lot closer the GoPro footage it kind of made you a little bit seasick. So even the the uh, feeling that the film gives you was a different feeling too. Yeah, I I mean that's the screening that I saw. I I do. Th- I mean, Cinema Two down in Luna SX for anybody who's been in there, uh, it is a tight screening. <laughs> it is a you know you are quite close to the screen, um, but I think it worked. It, it looked looked good. So that's the main thing. Um, and yes, I I personally found the the questions a little bit like okay think about what you're saying before you actually ask it um so in that regard one of the other questions which i have is that you know people tend to just kind of blurt out with oh, what was your name beforehand and stuff like that and how do you think that a film like yours is going to be able to help change that kind of social aspect of people just going well what's your, your what was your name before what's your real name that kind of stuff um, well, using someone's dead name and asking someone what their dead name is, you know, and you know, uh, is is offensive. But I think what my film does it creates social modelling. So when you watch it, you're learning how to treat trans people because they're telling you how they wish to be treated. And this is an exercise in agency. I haven't uh, constructed this film; they've helped me make it. It's their voice. It's their story. But also when you watch it, you you learn how, in a way, to behave towards trans people in a, in a, in a lot more sympathetic and ethical way. Mm-hmm. They're, they're human beings that need to be loved and hugged and respected and heard. And I think that's something that I think is the takeaway message from the film. I'm I'm, I'm not creating a spectacle of them and they are also speaking for themselves in their own in their own way and in their own terms oh definitely and you know as i was saying before it's it's that collaborative aspect about it which it comes through wholeheartedly um so because this is for your phd you still you know before off mic we were talking about how you've got thousands and thousands of words to write up um so outside of the festival arrangement What's your plans for this film? Um, I would like to get it on television, um, ABC, SBS, and, you know, have queer, friendly, but also people who are are wanting to learn about the trans experience view it because I think, you know, these are the kinds of films that actually open people's hearts and minds to things that they probably wouldn't have understood or sought out um, if they hadn't have seen it. So... um, my hope is to get it onto television and maybe, um, you know, get it into some more film festivals. But I need to um, complete my PhD first. <laughs> so, so for audiences out there, you know, push it, Jonathan, on, on social media and say, hurry up, finish it, because it's a really good film. And, you know, for me, at least in, in Australia, I'm like, oh, this is great to see this kind of story being told. But I think internationally there's a lot to gain from this, this kind of film. Um, specifically as we were saying before the the trans woman story has been it's very well covered out there but the trans man story is you know not so much so it's great to see this here now having a look back through your the work that you've done like you've been 
active for a very long time in various different aspects in both Australia and the US. What's the difference between working here versus working overseas? So um, I really started my career working as a third assistant director um, at the BBC. So I worked on Absolutely Fabulous as an assistant, a third assistant director and a floor runner. Um, and I worked on Top of the Pops and Generation Game and it was pretty amazing working on Top of the Pops. So I got to work with people like the Spice Girls and Bjork and Gina G and just all <laughs> these really fantastic people, yeah. artists. And um, then I came back to Australia and I studied at NIDA and then I moved to America and did my Masters at the American Film Institute in directing, specifically in directing. And after that I went and worked with Kathleen Kennedy and her company Kennedy Marshall um, and while I was there, they were producing Seabiscuit and the Bourne Supremacy. So in Australia, the difference is basic, oh, essentially is that the film industry wouldn't exist without philanthropy and mm -hmm. government funding and government assistance. And in the United States, there's no government assistance. There's only tax breaks. Yeah. So uh, every decision that is made in a, um, an American film... Um, is based on finances. So people get cast based on um, their bankability and their BO. We, we, we say, do they have BO? So do they have box office pull? Sure. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I've seen, I've seen people get cast and then, you know, uncast and then new people recast um, just to, you know, give people an opportunity to make more money. And it, and it, and it feels very uncomfortable watching that happen. And but that's just that's the that's the business. It is a business. Yeah. There it is a business, and I think often in Australia it's an art form. I think that's a it's a great distinction between the two because you know part of the the reason why I do this particular podcast is because it's like you know Australian film is great, and I absolutely love Australian cinema, and and there is for me at least there's a distinct difference between what we do in Australia and what we do in America well not we but what Americans do um, which is really interesting so absolutely fabulous and then you did some work with the director of Rocky Horror Picture Show as well mm. and then also worked on partly on uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch and there's kind of a, a you know a queer LGBTQI strength like sort of uh, narrative, I guess, going through the people that you've worked with. Was this a conscious decision or was it just something that you kind of fell into? So the Jim Sharman um, was a mentor of mine while I was at NIDA and when I graduated and he wrote and directed Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, Ab Fab, that, the producer of that um, was Bob Spears and the director, and but, you know, Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders, that's Gen Jennifer Saunders, that's her baby with Dawn French. Um, but the it was definitely a conscious decision um, to work with Killer Films. I did an internship at Killer Films, and we released Hedwig and the Angry Inch while I was there. And Todd Haynes's work. Um, oh gosh, I'm sorry, not it's Todd okay. Haynes. Um, <laughs> uh, John John Cameron Mitchell. Oh gosh, yeah. John Cameron Mitchell. Todd Haynes' it, work is still good though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> so we were working at the same time um, as Hedwig was being released by John Cameron Mitchell. Um, Todd Haynes' movie was in pre-production, so Far From Heaven, we were working right. on the budgets and we were breaking that down, so yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I think um, alternative stories is something that I've, I've, I've always been interested in and fantastical stories um, and things that are kind of um, camp, maybe, but 
that's actually what that I mean there's a difference between what you're interested in and mm-hmm. what you create so I've never created anything like that um, but I'm interested in the study of that and also the business model behind that and how things get made yeah and I think you know I for the the narrative I guess in social in films specifically for me um, you know films like Rocky Horror Picture Show I remember seeing that when I was like eight years old and being like holy shit, this is a whole different world. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that this this kind of stuff existed. So for me, it, it certainly was very enlightening. Um, was that the kind of the same thing for you, in particular with Rocky Horror? Oh, yeah, gosh, it changed my life. Um, you know, and, and because it was a musical spectacular um, and knowing Jim and knowing, you know, some of the background story about, you know, he was offered 10 times or 100 times more budget and it was going to be Cher and David Bowie and, you know, completely different cast. But because it had been a theatre piece and it was really close to his heart, he wanted to, you know, um, keep it close to him. Um, I think also the song Don't Dream It, Do It, you know, really spurned um, a sexual awakening in most people. And it, and it's it's sexy. It's 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 desirable. It's it creates lust. This film and um, it, it, it's a new language. And I don't think it, there's ever been a film that I can think of that can kind of imitate it. Or it's it's one of a kind. Yeah, yeah. definitely, <laughs> definitely. Have Have you seen the um, the US remake of it with um, Laverne Cox? Yeah, um, I think that would be Rocky Horror Nine Hundred Two One Zero. I haven't seen it myself, but um, only because it just—I just haven't had the time to be able to seek it out. But I, oh, I'm, she's a, she's amazing she's in it. Yeah, she's really amazing in it. But it doesn't have the truth, integrity, or complexity um, that the original has. But none of these remakes tend to. I mean, my wife was watching the Dirty Dancing remake with Abigail Breslin yesterday, and she's like, "Oh no, my eyes! What have I done to deserve this?" <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I mean, that comes down back to the filmmaking model. These things are true, tried and true successes, and so we remake them for a new generation, um, and it makes money again because we it did well before. But I, I think what's coming out of things like this um, Dirty Dancing remake is maybe some of these things aren't as successful the second time around. Well, that's it. So, in Australia, like, LGBTIQ films and narratives aren't that common in our films, or on TV at least. And if they are, then... I can't think of really an example other than, say, like, 52 Tuesdays. You know, they're just... They're more of the tragic side... What do you think we can do in Australia to help push these stories? Um, you know, divert more funding towards them, but also, you know, actually ask the queer community what their story is, because I think often it may be used as a device. Often the queer story is used as a device of tragedy, and I, I think filmmakers need to kind of think about what the message is that they're telegraphing to an audience, because... Mm-hmm that's certainly not everybody's experience and I think if you create this false sense of, I mean, you know, we're, it's a creation, a film is a creation so if we create this false sense of reality um, you know it's uh, not cause and effect, it's dramatic effect and so um, we're then building an audience to believe that all of these stories will always be negative and then people seem to mirror these stories that are created and then they live miserably you know, we can actually have a positive reinforcement model. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. There's 
There was a film that screened at Revelation a couple of years ago, and it was only for one screening. Um, it was called Drown. It's an Australian film. It's quite a good film, but it it does certainly feel like it's about this this guy who work, who uh, lives in a um, well. Essentially, he's a surf lifesaver, and he's questioning his sexuality, and he fights out about it and beats up people and stuff like that. And you know, it's a tragic story. It's interesting, but you know feeding into what you're just saying like it's it goes against telling these kinds of stories because you know he's in some ways he's not embracing who he is and i guess it's the australian i don't know i could be wrong but it feels like it's the australian way of going you know ah it's wrong being gay and that kind of stuff do you find like i'm not sure what i'm trying to get at here but what I'm concerned about in Australia at least is that you know we still don't have gay marriage and these kinds of stories just aren't embraced the way that they should be do you think that that's a that's something that Australia as a whole needs to really you know pull up its britches and get better at doing this kind of stuff um look I think once you start seeing gay indigenous characters on Neighbours which we have seen recently (laughs) um, you know the conversation is starting to change but those uh, discussions are kind of tokenistic yeah Um, but uh, I think you know LGBTIQ stories don't are are kind of fetishised in the in the national dialogue but on the other hand you know I'm not sure exactly how to change that other than make films where you know a secondary character just happens to be gay or you know happens to have some trauma happen as a plot device Uh, i think we need to question the stories and how they're being told i think that's what i would like to do in my next works is just kind of say well you know these aren't primary character your your gender or your sexuality aren't primary drivers for a plot it's yeah it's part of who you are it's not what, what, what yeah. drives you as a person it, it's not what defines you as a person because mm. you know there are things which change you know as we're saying about the the people in your film you know they've the, the struggles that they go through are very relatable like parent issues is not a specific trans uh problem so it's you know it's not that that defines who they are it's just part of who they are as people um do you think that, like, so festivals like Revelation have always done, in my opinion, have done a great job of showcasing these kinds of stories? And, you know, the your film, and there was another film called Women Who Kill, uh, which screened at the festival, which is a, you know, fictional narrative that just kind of like the, the people in that story were gay. And it was no consequence to the story. It wasn't, you know, it didn't define the story itself. It was just a part of the story. Um, a bit like, I guess, you know, if there was, if it was a straight narrative, then it would be no different, really. Um, do you think that festivals like Revelation help push those kinds of, these kinds of films and wide open up to a wider audience? Yeah, I absolutely do. And I think, you know, Revelation has such a rich, um, warp and weft of, uh, ideas that's built into the fabric of its ideology but it's getting audiences to rev. I mean, it was pretty packed this year in many of the screenings I went to. But, you know, the, the flow on from that... Um, you know, I, I can speak from personal experience. So, Rev had an amazing experience. ABC covered my film. 120,000 hits on the yeah. ABC website in two days. Um, 
and then I don't have distribution for my film. I don't know where to go from here, you know. So, you know, that opening up that conversation and getting eyeballs onto the screens um, and also getting it out there, that's another complex thing. And I guess when you're talking about people, people often like watch the ABC or watch SBS because, you know, it offers alternative realities and alternative narratives. But sometimes people also, you know mock the ABC for doing that and they they want to see, you know, Midsummer murder mysteries and yeah, things that a, they've been seeing for the last 50 years over and over again. It's yeah. that, that left bias that the ABC has apparently. Mm. Uh, if you go on social media, that's essentially, oh, it's always, they're always trying to push like Yasmin's story and stuff like that. I'm like, I love Yasmin, I think she's great and I love hearing her story, so please, more of that. Mm, yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, one of the other things which I think was absolutely great is that, you know, in Perth at least, street press just doesn't kind of... It's been dying off. You know, Express has disappeared, uh, drum media has disappeared and stuff like that. They've all gone online. But out in Perth, as a magazine, still exists and it's still widely available. So, and, you know, you and uh, Simon and David and I think Logan as well possibly or maybe it was just, just Simon, Simon and David, David yeah. were on the front cover which was stunning. It was great to see. So for a whole week, you know, that magazine is pushing, you know, your story. How was that? And how was it, did you, like for Simon and David, how was it being, you know, figureheads of a major magazine like Out in Perth? Oh, it was, fant- it was a fantastic experience and the Out in Perth team are incredible. Um, I think for Simon and David, it gave them visibility, but it also um, made them feel that their experience mattered. Mm-hmm. They weren't invisible. And I don't think they want to be invisible as transgender men. I think they want to be out there and they're very proud to be transgender men. They've, I think they've moved through the shame and the projection that other people have put on them. And um, in Perth, there's a thing, you know, people call you a personality, but you're a personality. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, and I think, um, you know, that that's kind of happening to them. But, you know, it's it, it's ego dri- driving, but it's not also about the individual. It's about the larger narrative that trans men exist. And um, we've been able to make this story that, you know, has actually opened up the conversation to others so at the the screening that you were at um in Fremantle there were two people who came up to us and said you know um we're considering transitioning where should we go what should we do mm-hmm. you know and I you know of course I'm not a medical specialist but you know I, I after doing this this film you know I have ideas about clinical pathways and where to point people in the right direction so you know people are being more open and honest even about themselves because trans visibility is now a thing trans male visibility is a thing so i mean kudos to you know revelation and out in perth and everyone who's supported this film so far because um without that you know it's my phd project that lives in the library at a university i think you know this has got a lot more legs than just being a you know a book on a shelf somewhere which is great to see um Specifically with David's story as well, it's great to see him on the front cover of Out in Perth because, you know, spoiler alert for the film, but, you know, his story is really difficult in the sense that where he lives, he's, you know, there's a really traumatic moment where he's, you know, talking about how the kids in the street are abusing him and stuff like that and the shop that he works at, you know, people ask him the wrong questions and and treat him wrong, like... You know, and then to see him improve over the film and, and move to a safe place and become a better person and being able to embrace who he is 
you know, more so is really fantastic. And then to see post the film that he's on the front cover of Out in Perth is like fantastic. You know, it's, 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 for me at least as a viewer, it's like the final acceptance in the sense that like those kids, they don't matter anymore because this is who I am and this is, I'm embracing it, which is fantastic. I love to see that. Um, one of the other aspects which I think is really interesting about your film is that, you know, and we can wrap up in a minute because we've been talking for ages. I'm sure you've got a life to live. No, no, I'm happy to chat to you all day. This is good. Um, you know, one of the other aspects which I think is really important is that, you know, you talk about the financial toll that, that you know, transitioning is. And it's a very difficult thing because of the fact that people just kind of forget that. They think that, oh, you just have a couple of injections and suddenly you're a man or suddenly you're a woman. So was that kind of like you fell into that? there was just part of their narrative or something you had aimed to tell well the whole um transitioning um narrative uh, for individuals is dominated by legal and the legal profession and medicine so you know you have to ask permission you have to you know and and i find that quite strange that you need you know a psychologist's letter and an endocrinologist to get the medications mm. but you also need when you want to change your legal status you need letters from friends saying that this person is living the life in this gender to go to the gender board to change your gender markers on your passport and also um on you know for but you, you can change it on your birth certificate but if you want to change your passport you have to go through the gender board and and you know i i see some merit in that which um can be very healthy and very helpful for a number of uh, most people but it can also be very traumatizing and the financial aspect um you know it's between 10 and 15 thousand dollars for um top surgery to have your um breasts removed so that's a very expensive cost and then you know bottom surgery can be anywhere up to two hundred thousand dollars so um it's not it's not an easy thing and i think transgender people you know the, certainly the trans men that I've experienced um, go through periods of time in their life where they live in abject poverty mm. and saving up the money but also losing your job or um, being able to fund those things as there is no government support to do that, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. And I think the other aspect as well is that you know there is still unfortunately in society that stigma about employing trans people and whether it's the unconscious bias that people have makes it very difficult for, for trans people to actually move up and progress into a career where they can actually earn that money to be able to have those surgeries and, and also have a job which allows them to take the time off to have those surgeries and, and heal and, and, you know... It can be up to a year oh, for, for the, yeah. you know, phalloplasty surgery. And we've got to be better at appreciating and understanding these you know what people go through like i think one of the other aspects is that you know not equating uh, the trans story to mental illness or anything like that but we have in western society at least a lot of a, a huge journey to go towards understanding what people go through with mental illness what people go through with uh, trans uh, you know journeys and stuff like that and for me i'm hopeful that we'll reach that point one day i think in terms of the trans um 
narrative is that what I've what I've come to understand, which I didn't understand before, is that the transgender men are probably mentally healthier than any any of the other people that I've met in the wider community. Yeah. You know, and David says it really clearly. He said, there's nothing wrong with my mind. It's my body that is wrong. Yep. So if we can, you know, assist transgender people um, altering their bodies to make them feel like they're unified and, and, and also support them, we're doing the right thing as a society. Definitely. So with the supporting them, what particular places can people go to find out in Western Australia or Australia at least? I'm not sure if the websites are region specific or not, but what websites can people go to to get assistance? Um, I would certainly um, in Western Australia tell people to go onto Facebook and find the trans folk of WA. It used to be trans men of WA, but it's been quite popular and many people have been reaching out. So the trans folk of WA... If you're a transgender person or an ally or a family member of a transgender person, there are supports there for you. So trans folk of WA, um, there's PFLAG, and there are also quite a number of other um, psychologists who specialise um, in support for transgender people. So, And I'll make sure yeah. to put links all in, in there as well because, um, you know, it's certainly something which people going through these journeys need to need support and need to find out where they can lean on other people as well. Mm. Um, one of the questions, which is un- not really associated with your film and such, but one of the things I find really interesting in discussing films like this, and one of the problems that I find as a cisgender, straight, white guy, um, is that... You don't have to say that all the time. <laughs> you just, just be a person. <laughs> well, that's, that's it. Okay, so maybe because in, like... The interaction I have on social media, at least, is, you know, with America, it's always labels and stuff like that. In Australia, less so. But, you know, it's still... When I'm discussing films like 52 Tuesdays or films that talk it's about... It's such a beautiful film. It's a great film. Yeah. It really is. But when I'm discussing it, it's like... I think sometimes, I guess, the audience is very much like, well you don't understand that journey so you don't have the right to discuss it do you think that that's an issue with you know talking about film or talking about you know entertainment as such um that only people who have experienced that journey can talk about it Mm, that's an interesting question and i think that comes up a lot i mean especially with when you're talking about afro-american stories you know people say oh or indigenous stories only indigenous storytellers should be able to tell those stories so there is some form of ownership um, by communities to tell their own stories and I think that's very important to ha- you know for people to take the microphone and speak into it to you know the idea of agency is extremely important but you know I, I think if you enforce those rules too too systematically you know men can only tell men's stories yeah. <laughs> white men can only tell white men's stories women can only tell women's stories and and and, and we build walls we don't break them down and yeah. it's not helpful so i think as long as people are consulted and um involved in the story and the narrative well you know i think you can you can share stories but you can't steal them yes yeah yeah i think that's i think that's the key is that you know don't crib it for you know your own gain i guess is the way and and i think you know engaging with communities and being able to explore their stories while engaging with them 
you know, is, is important. Um, all right, we'll wrap up in a minute. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about your film that I haven't asked? No, I, I have. I conjure up these questions in my mind, and uh, I, I often wonder if the the people that I talk to are like, ah, oh, I really wish that he asked that. So, is there anything that you know you really wish that I had asked? No, I think you've pretty much covered it. I, I would just like to say that if um, there are any trans people listening, you know, the narrative is changing, and there are people out there who genuinely do care about your story and want to support you in telling your story. And if you know a transgender person, you know, um, let them tell you their story and be kind to them. You know, there's no reason not to reach out and ask to understand, ask people what they would like to be called. And they will tell you and, and give them the opportunity just to express themselves. Yeah, I think the pronouns is certainly, you know, his, him, etc., is really important and and yeah i i can't agree more and and if you see someone in a bathroom just let them go to the toilet yeah who gives a fuck yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, i don't give a shit yeah. <laughs> i'm more concerned about not peeing on myself than you know what anybody else is doing in there I'm not saying that i can't pee properly but it's just a case of Jeez, I really painted myself poorly there but <laughs> nonetheless do. you know what i mean <laughs> i mean we're all able to sh- share toilets on airplanes so, I mean, what's the issue? Seriously. Exactly. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> so the question that I ask everybody that comes on, is there an Australian film that you recommend people seek out? Um, doesn't have to be specifically about, you know, trans story or anything like that, but if there's a film that you would like people to be able to see and say, this is what I think is a good slice of Australian cinema. So i think one of the best films that were made that was made in the 90s was proof by jocelyn morehouse and um it's stars russell crowe genevieve pico and hugo weaving and it's it's kind of a kitchen sink drama that explores the contractedness of relationships and how people lie to each other and themselves and hugo weaving is blind in the movie and his name is martin and he takes um, Polaroid photographs and he gets people to explain them to him and um, Genevieve Pico plays the character Celia and she is the housekeeper and she starts lying to Martin and um, Andy becomes Martin's new best friend, they become fast friends and why I think it's a really important film is that in Australian society there are things that we share and things that we can live in complete denial about. So refugees and asylum seekers, we can all pretend that that's not happening. But it is happening, and mm. we know that's happening, but we won't talk about it because somehow um, you know, it's these, these conversations are too hard. And why I think Proof is such a seminal movie, especially for a contemporary audience, is that um, it talks about the nastiness and the darkness of what Australian... Um, the underbelly of Australian society is, but it also talks about mateship and k- kindness. Yeah, so. yeah, it's a great film, and Jocelyn Morehouse is a stunning director. Love her work. Um, there's a there was a recently a restoration of the film as well, which unfortunately I haven't seen been able to see a print of it, but I'm really eager to because it was a film which I watched probably a little bit too early. I watched it when it first came out, and I was only. 11, 12 years old at the time and I was like 
okay, I know this is good, <laughs> but I don't entirely know why. And then I revisited it when I was able to comprehend it a lot more. And I was like, all right, yeah, this is this is great. The performances are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, even Saskia Post, who was the star of Dogs in Space, makes mm. a makes a cameo as a waitress. I mean, I've directed her in a play before, but just the whole movie itself just really the, yeah uh, the performances are amazing the directing is incredible um and though it's not fantastical and it's not you know otherworldly it really speaks to who we are as a culture i think i agree well thank you very much i've appreciated and loved this discussion um i've learned a lot and you know which is always probably you know I don't know, it's, it's, sometimes it feels a little bit problematic when people say, oh, I've learned so much from this. <laughs> <laughs> little by little, we have to chisel away. I mean, we've all got stuff to learn, and I think once you stop learning, you die. Well, that's it. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to die. We want to keep on learning. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jonathan. I appreciate your time. I Thanks really a do. lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blast New Wave. It's a very interesting interview there with Jonathan Messer, director of It's Not Just Me. Great documentary, as I mentioned at the start. Four and a half stars I gave, which you can read my review. It's on abfilmreview.com. I'll stick the link in the show notes. I'll also stick a link in the show notes for Transfolk of WA, the Facebook page there, which is facebook.com forward slash tfolkwa. If you're interested in finding a bit more information and seeking out the resources for transgender people within WA, then that's a great resource. I'll also stick a link to the Facebook page for It's Not Just Me, so you can uh, certainly hit like on there and keep track of when the documentary is going to be coming out. If you want to help support me and what we do with this show, then head over to abfilmreview.com where you can find previous episodes of The Last New Wave as well as episodes of our other show, which is AB Film Review, uh, where myself and my wife, Bernadette, discuss the latest releases, uh, film releases, whether it be Australian or international documentaries, superhero films, whatever. We discuss them on there. Um, we've also launched a Patreon as well, so if you care to throw us a dollar, that would be fantastic. Uh, the aim is to essentially just be able to help cover the cost of hosting the uh, podcast, which isn't much. It's about $10 a month. Um, so, you know, if you'd like to, fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Um, we're also part of the Following Films team, where you can listen to other podcasts just like The Last New Wave. Uh, specifically a podcast called Following Films where the host Chris Maynard interviews various different uh, directors and actors and filmmakers it's a really fantastic podcast I highly recommend heading over to followingfilms.com and listening to the shows on there follow us on social media AB Film Review on both Facebook and on Twitter and that's really about it thanks again for listening to this episode keep on watching Australian cinema and I'll see you in the next episode of The Last New Wave